Hi everyone, it's John. And Ben. And welcome back to Santa by the Minute, the podcast where Ben and I talk about 1985 Santa Claus the movie. Well, one minute at a time. Ben, what minute are we on this week? We are on minute 49. 49 minutes into the movie, and we have a f- quite a few, well, I don't know how many, at least three very Santa-centric minutes coming up. Yeah, at least. Mm-hmm. Probably even more than that, so stay tuned if you want your Santa fill. <laughs> next few weeks, next few months, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> next couple months. There'll be a lot of Santa. Well, anyway, let's dive right into minute number 49. We see that miniature sleigh flying over the city skyline. We're not quite sure what city yet. If you're familiar with New York City, then you would know what it was. But if you're not familiar then you may not because it's just a skyline with some bridges you know what i love about the shot of the little sleigh flying towards the camera it's like you can see the little santa figure's arms moving up and down like he's controlling the reins i know that is so cool it's like if you didn't realize that was a miniature model you would just thought they would take the santa footage and like kind of shrink it down or like from far away somehow, and superimpose it over the city skyline. Yeah, you would. But after that brief shot, we see him coming down, and then you can clearly see it's New York City because you see the World Trade Center because this is 1983. Yep. Definitely making this movie a time capsule. It is, it is, that's for sure. Like whenever you see the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers in any movie of this era, it's always like, oh. Yeah. Gets a little depressing for a minute. You have to, like, get yourself back into the movie, I think. But then you see the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, Santa looks down and says, Merry Christmas, pretty lady! So if you didn't know where we were before, now you gotta know where he's at. And Santa seems to be a big fan. Yeah. I hope he's in this enthusiastic about every landmark. Like if he goes through <laughs> England or Egypt or something, you're like, hey. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he saw it getting put together. Oh, that's true. You know, I, I mean, I don't know how long it took to get her into place, but I would imagine that it took longer than one year. So he had to have seen the progress. Okay, well, hang on. We're going to pause it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this up. Construction started in September 1875. Okay, well, i got to write this down for our timeline, right? 1875 was a start. There's no completion date. Hang on. Well, <laughs> n- I, there's a lot of information here. I'm... <laughs> I'm just looking for the completion date. <laughs> because it was a gift from France to the U.S. Right. I did know that because there's one over there. And it was unveiled on October 28th, 1886. So, yeah, he would have had nine Christmases watching her being put together. He may even caught glimpses, like, flying over France a couple of years there before it was shipped over here. Well, I'm sure he did. You know, he would have seen that one being created and this one. So, he probably has some sentimental attachment. You never know. (laughs) The head and shoulders were completed in 1878 and displayed at the Paris Universal Exposition. The entire statue was completed and assembled in Paris between 1881 and 1884. 
Also in 1884, construction on the pedestal began in the United States. Well, now we know the history of when the Statue of Liberty was started and completed, so we can add that to our timeline of things that Santa saw through his years. And during Santa's flyover of New York City here, it alternates between shots of the full-size sleigh with the animatronic reindeer and the miniature sleigh with the little Santa figure and the miniature reindeer. Right. And it all flows so seamlessly. It does. Near the end of the show, I will read some out of the press kit about the special effects supervisors and who were in charge of the models and the miniatures. And then Santa begins, like, monologuing to the reindeer about, Oh, look at that, boys! Look at the decorations in the windows! What a night, my boys! What a night! (laughs) Decorations hung at the windows! Stockings hung by the fireplaces! Isn't it wonderful? And then he says, Tonight there's not a child alive who's not bursting with joy and happiness. Tonight there's not a child alive who's not bursting with joy and happiness. And then Santa looks down and catches a glimpse of something and tells the reindeer they're going to make an unexpected stop. Oh. Hang on, boys. I think we're going to make an unscheduled stop. Now, I think I can make the case here that Santa knew all along he was going to make this stop in New York City. And he's just sort of like putting on an act for the reindeer. You think so? I think so. Because he he's seen New York City and possibly Joe and Cornelia through the magic snow globe <laughs> if you're going by my movie theory. <laughs> and as a parent, this seems like a very dad thing to do. It's like, oh, we're just going out for a ride. Nothing. Uh, we're not going to do anything special. Oh, what's over there? Let's pull over to this yard sale. What? I didn't know this was happening today. Yeah, that sounds like a dad thing to do if you're John, that's for sure. (laughs) We see it's Joe warming himself by a fire in a metal barrel in an alleyway. So what is your take? Do you think my case that Santa had this pre-planned and is just saying, oh, this is an unscheduled stop, boys. We We gotta pull over here because I see a glimpse of a kid in distress. I I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Um, Santa says in the book, decorations in the window, stockings hung by the fireplace. Santa went on happily. Tonight, there isn't a child alive who isn't bursting with joy and happiness. And he broke off as he saw something down below that rang discordantly with his merry vision. He frowned in surprise and concern. And that's when he saw Joe. So if he's surprised, then maybe he wasn't expecting to see Joe. See, he says, in an alley far... Well, this is what he's thinking and what's happening. In an alley far below, a young boy was huddled all alone by a garbage can bonfire, shivering with cold. What was that child doing out in such a freezing night with no shelter, too cold to even sleep? So, like, the book makes it sound like he has no idea that there are any homeless children in the whole entire world. Yeah, that's kind of hard to swallow. It is, yeah. So I think my pre-planned Santa case has some merit. (laughs) I mean, we can use it. There's nothing to say otherwise, (laughs) you know? I mean, if we're going to go with your magical snow globe thing where he can see into the world, 
then he obviously knows about Joe. Maybe he was hoping Joe had found a home by now. Possibly. And he was surprised to see that Joe was still on the streets. Well, I don't know. It seems like a pretty big coincidence that he just happens to fly over the exact place Joe is on this Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, he has all the time in the world. Yeah. He probably has that snow globe packed in his sleigh with him. Maybe. See, I, I'm just kind of <laughs> giving Santa the benefit of the doubt here. <laughs> we can go because, with it. Because everybody's made the jokes like, oh, oh, Santa, this is the first homeless kid ever. Mm-hmm. It's like we're, we're even guilty of that to an extent, not on this podcast, but in our various conversations. Well, I just said it two seconds ago. <laughs> True. It was, <laughs> it was in the book. And I think I've... Uh, yeah, I have mentioned it to you off mic, uh, how, you know, these are endless nights for Santa. Right. So every Christmas, he could be having a multitude of different adventures with a multitude of different kids in need. Yes. And we, this is just the one that we happen to see in the movie play out. Right. I mean, there could, they could, there could be multiple Joes all around the world that he does this with. We just don't know because we're just seeing this one storyline, not all of them. And that would explain why he's so darn tired. Yes. That's why he's exhausted. <laughs> so Santa comes down for his unexpected stop on this rooftop, and we get a quick glimpse of the real reindeer. We do. We switch from the full-size animatronics that we saw in the close-ups in the sky and the miniature model, and now we're seeing the real honest-to-goodness reindeer. I think this is the closest look we get at real reindeer in the whole movie. Because this is a really close-up shot of, I'm not sure which two, <laughs> but <laughs> I we'll can't. See a bit, we'll see a bit more yeah. of them in minute 50. I can't make out uh, their letters, so I can't tell who they are. But So yeah, this is probably the second biggest scene with the real reindeer, because there are the two at the beginning who pull Santa and Anya to the village to deliver the gifts mm -hmm. before they freeze. And then, of course, the one where they're running out of the toy tunnel. Those are the real reindeer when they make that turn. Right. And then here when they're landing on this rooftop. So I guess we'll have to see later on if the real reindeer reappear. I'm sure they do at some point. They have to, right? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they'll be back. And believe it or not, my notes end here this week. Yeah. I, I don't have too, too much for this week either because not really a lot happens honestly a lot of it is just like most of the minute is him just flying through the sky i know and there's some New beautiful York. yeah there are a lot of beautiful shots and it's all very convincing mm -hmm. but i don't really have a lot of notes on it i do so, have but... a little i do have a little note about donner though um while they are flying over new york santa all of a sudden says look down there you know, when I think when he sees Joe, he says, look down there. And Donner obediently did, but quickly looked back up again as the vertigo made him dizzy. Even after all these years, he was still afraid of flying. That's that very was, interesting. You yeah, think that was after all this time, he'd get used to it a bit. Yeah. Well, in, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, go ahead, but I have a little bit more about Donner in a... In the next, I think the next minute, there's a little bit more about poor Donner and his flying problems coming up. So, 
Yeah, Donner is still afraid of flying, even after thousands of years of doing it. <laughs> so since we don't have a lot of notes to go off of, don't worry. We, we're still going to keep the show rolling because we saw a glimpse of the real reindeer. That means Ben gets to whip out the book of Tilly Smith, Velvet. Oh, geez. Velvet. You Velvet. take it from here. Velvet antlers, velvet noses. I should write that down somewhere. <laughs> so I do, I have a story. I have gone through the gone through the book and I've written down a bunch of different stories about the reindeer from Santa Claus, the movie. So this is uh, straight from Tilly's book. The reindeer at Cane Gorm Reindeer Center were involved in a couple notable productions and television programs and advertisements. One autumn day, an American film company arrived for tea at the reindeer house to discuss with Dr. Lindgren the possibility of hiring a number of reindeer. The filmmakers were looking for two full teams of eight reindeer each, plus extras, and it was pretty quick. They realized Kane Gorm did not have enough to supply them with what they needed. So they ended up going to the Norwegian Lapland to find the teams of reindeer. And before the film company negotiated with Dr. Lindgren to have Alan, a member of the Cairngorms team, to go to Pinewood Studios with two of their reindeer to assist in the making of the models, the filmmakers wanted to study the movements of the deer to help make the life-size models that replace the real-life deer in the close-up shots. Some of the models made were life-sized, and some were only toy-sized, the, them being used for the flying sequences. And all were incredibly lifelike. And I have a little bit about Derek Meddings, the director of visual and miniature effects for this movie. This comes from the UK press kit that Darren sent along. We've been reading out of it the past couple of weeks. And we, we're still hoping to have Darren on the show, so mm -hmm. stay tuned for that. We're going to have to have him on for a big minute. Yeah, yeah. So Derek Meddings worked with the Salkins before on the first three Superman movies, Supergirl, and he was around Pinewood because he did a bunch of James Bond movies, like The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, and of course, Santa Claus the Movie. And here's a quote um, from him that, you know, looking at in 2021, I'll, I'll let you uh, commentate <laughs> on it after the fact. Okay. He has a quote here in the press kit about um, how miniatures have been in the industry for a very long time, and the techniques have been improved so much that they are now a fine art. Then he goes on to say, Computers will never be able to punch up acceptable models, although motion control cameras can enhance some shots. Personally, I avoid them, because when you open them up and look inside, you don't recognize anything and have to call a boffin in. I don't have no idea what that means. <laughs> Now I'm going to have to Google it. I don't I'm know sure one I'm... of our UK fans will <laughs> like, what's a boffin? I don't know. I've never heard of a boffin. B-O-F-F-I-N. A person engaged in scientific or technical research, or a person with knowledge or a skill considered to be complex and difficult. Okay. Oh, well. so basically like an expert. But I find it funny that he said, you know, computers will never be able to top these models, you know, these intricate models. Like, I'm sure if they rebooted uh, Santa Claus movie or, you know, Superman, you know, they're not going to be using models anymore, unfortunately. Nope. Models aren't really used now. I mean, not the way they are in this, you know, in this 
they may be used for setting up shots and like where things would go, but uh, definitely not, <laughs> not like this. Computers have taken over everything now. He goes on to say, I like doing it the traditional way because the next morning I go to rushes and see a complete shot, not having to wait weeks before every element is put together. Because I'm sure, I'm thinking he's saying back in the day, you know, if it was going to be like a computer thing, mm -hmm. you'd probably have to wait like weeks or months for it to render and all the elements right. to be put together. Meanwhile, if you're just, you know, doing the model thing, you'd be able to see how it's all coming together right away. And in back in 1980, in 1970, computers were for something that you would need for like this would have been huge and would have taken a lot of a lot of work <laughs> you know i mean like the the home computers that we had back in the 80s you know they wouldn't have been what you would have needed for a movie you know so the computers that they had for this would have had to have been humongous and they must have worked awfully slow well even the effects in this movie going back to the making of special on the dvd remember just doing the effects where they had to superimpose film on film mm -hmm. like somebody standing next to this gigantic machine with these giant 35 millimeter rolls of film mm -hmm. it's like that's something i'm sure they don't do nowadays <laughs> no and then he says, on Santa Claus the movie, the visuals have taken an engineering shop, two model workshops, a mechanical special effects unit, a model unit, and a motion control crew before we got them just so. We are talking about more than 50 people working full time. But if the screenwriter insists on including all those wonderfully outrageous ideas in the script and the producers want to put them on the screen, then Metting laughs out loud with delight at the challenge. <laughs> So he was ready to take it on. Yeah. And he did a great job. It's he very, did. very convincing and still holds up, mm -hmm. you know, 36 years later. Mm -hmm. Yes. What he created was amazing. And Roy Field was the optical visual effects supervisor. I'm not sure if we talked about Roy Field before, but his credits also include Superman 3, Supergirl, Superman the movie. So many Superman connections. Ben, one of these days we're going to have to... It has to be on HBO Max. We're going to have to sit down and watch Superman. So it's many been a connections. long time since I've watched Superman. <laughs> so many connections to this movie. He has uh, on Diamonds Are Forever, the James Bond movie, Return to Oz, uh, and Jim Henson's Dark Crystal. So uh, you can see a lot of those influences in this movie. Mm -hmm. He was a British and American Academy Award winner for his work on Superman the movie. And in constant demand internationally to lecture and consult on his specialty. The biggest compliment you can pay a Roy Field is not to be able to see the joins. Well, I think what he means is that if you can't see the joints of the animals. No, not joints. It's spelled J-O-I-N-S. Oh. Joins. Oh. Oh, where the live and the model come together. Oh, Yeah. I didn't even think of that, but that makes sense because then it goes on to say Dark Crystal had 250 superimposition shots. Some of them had 24 separate pieces of film put together mm -hmm. for the final version, and many people still believe there weren't any optical shots in the picture, he says with a smile. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 
But can you, 24 little pieces of film? No. Like, kind of mashed together to make uh-uh. this shot work? No. <laughs> That's insane. And you know we had to do it on this movie, too, to get him yeah. flying over New York City. Yep. Our workshop is the standard triple header printer, which produces duplicate negatives and because of its advanced construction can zoom and make other optical movements actually on camera. That's probably the big thing I was talking about earlier that was in the TV special. The giant piece of machinery that melds the films together. There's a UFO in the sky. What? (laughs) So I was looking at the model as it's flying over Joe, you know, to get an idea of um, the different effects they had to do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and um as santa is flying by it goes from the roof like he's flying over the roof he looks down he sees the fire pit you know and for a quick second there's a black blurt in the sky under the sleigh i mean it's like one frame and then it disappears again so there's a ufo (laughs) sky (laughs) 1885 it's just there and then it's gone i see what you're talking about i think it's probably just like a little speck of dirt or dust on the film i'm or sure one of the is. or one of the film elements but in the context of the movie i suppose it could be a ufo <laughs> there's also a light that goes off above like one, in of, one the, of the apartments yeah. yes i did notice that too like someone's getting ready to go to bed for the night yeah i had never noticed that before because it, it looks like it's just like a painting, you know what I mean, behind Joe. And Joe is just plopped in there like he was on a green screen. Because he has like this halo around him. And then there's Santa flying overhead. It's like... Yeah, it's, it's possible. I'm sure that's probably a matte painting. Yeah, it looks and they like had Yeah, they're probably like a lamp behind there somebody was mm-hmm. dimming to yeah. pull this off with all the effects. That may have even been a miniature. Yeah. And they flew the Santa over it. It could have been, the, yeah. And they superimposed a bit with Joe in the alleyway. Like, that could have been a separate shot. Yeah. You know, like how they did it in the parent trap when they get right. two Haley Mills in the same shot. Right. Because you could tell Joe has, like, a like a like an outline. It almost like he, like he has a stroke outline all around him. <laughs> but these guys knew what they were doing with oh, their yeah. practical effects using the 1980s standards. This was cutting edge back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays you look at it like, what's the big deal? Yeah. Different times, you know. I mean, you can tell how much things had advanced because, you know, there are movies that were just from, like, what, five years ago that you watch today and you're like, oh, goodness. That could have done been done a lot better, you know. And then you watch ones today. In five years, the ones coming out today, you're going to be like, oh, those could have been done better. You know, so... Like the late 90s, early 2000s CGI that looks pretty clunky. Right. And doesn't quite fit in. Yeah. You watch it today, it's like, ugh. <laughs> but when we saw it fresh, it was like, wow. But, I, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being serious when I say these special effects, I do think, really hold up. And mm-hmm. a lot of the ones, to his credit, like Dark Crystal and Superman, hold yep. up pretty good, too. Mm-hmm. There's always, and I guess I shouldn't, I should, I should tell you, I'm going back to the press kit. <laughs> and going back to the press kit, there's a couple more quotes here before we wrap things up. Here's Roy Field saying, there always has been, oops, sorry. There always has to be a certain amount of trial and error. 
with the verbal brief is to produce things that are literally out of this world. Sometimes it takes us up to 2,000 hand-drawn frames per shot to arrive at the acceptable image. This stuff, you, you know, you don't even think about it when you're watching it play out, but it's like all the, all the man hours that must have gone into these special effects film of the 80s. Mm-hmm. It's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Especially ones with a lot of practical effects. It's the beauty and delicacy that attracted me most to Santa Claus the movie. A lovely story. And for once, a pleasure to make a film for the whole family. I like shining the spotlight on these, you know, the more behind-the-scenes people. Mm-hmm. Who really, you know, the actors get a lot of the credit, but it's like also there's all these other moving parts of this giant, big-budget movie. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of people that definitely should des- should get way more credit than they do because the movie wouldn't have been nearly as good if it wasn't for all of their talent and hard work. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I, I have nothing else this week. I guess we have to move on to Minute 50 for next week. I guess so. <laughs> ben, where can everybody find us on social media? You think 49 <laughs> episodes in... <laughs> they they know where to find us, but just in case, just because you have you have recently redone the Santa by the Minute website. I have. I have created a whole new Santa by the Minute website. The link is in the description of the podcast, and uh, we have on there the Meet the Elves. So it gives you a rundown of the elves that have names so far in the movie, and we also have the Meet the Reindeer, where we have pictures of the uh animatronic reindeer on who plays what except for i think dasher is the only one we don't have a face to yet maybe someday we'll figure out which one is dasher and um we also have screenshots that we talk about each and every minute on the website as well so if there's any particular section of that movie they were talking to i have pictures on the website about that and uh, so, yeah, that's in the description. And if you want to find us on social media, we are at Santa Minute on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, Ben and I post a brand new episode each and every Wednesday. And as always, you can listen to any of those episodes. Supreme!